Would you pray with me? Lord, may these words be bread to us who eat and seed to us who sow. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Uh, these are, you know, some of these words are known as some of the difficult sayings of Jesus. I find really most of the sayings of Jesus are, are quite difficult in one way or the other, so I've stopped trying to segregate them. But um, some of us will have heard uh, these words before, the whole plucking of the eye thing. It's, it's a little bit difficult to understand, but um, as always, I like to emphasize that Jesus has not come to confuse us, nor to make it difficult for us to know him. There's always a real passion behind Jesus's teaching to draw us into closer fellowship with him and with each other. And in fact, that's one of the key themes in today's text is how to create a sense of belonging and overcome fear in relationships. Now, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, um, you'll see that Jesus continues to kind of embrace a sober tone. Uh, chapter 9, and by the way, I encourage you, if you have your Bibles with you, to open them or a Bible app. Um, I will be referring to some portions of Scripture on either side of our Gospel reading today, so that might be helpful for you. Um, if you have that. Um, you'll notice that in chapter 9, uh, Jesus is kind of on the cusp now of moving from the region of Galilee up in the north of Israel and starting his journey south to Jerusalem. And in all of the Gospels, this is always kind of a focal point or a, uh, a decisive moment where Jesus kind of uh, refines his teaching ministry into a sharper mode as he moves to Jerusalem and the scene of um, uh, the consummation of his ministry on earth. And you'll see that Jesus, just before our passage here, has come from the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, an incredible moment in Jesus' ministry that he reveals only to a few chosen disciples. And now we find him passing through Galilee just as he's about to head south. So there's kind of a mounting pressure, and like I say, kind of a sobriety to Jesus' teaching as he he, he kind of is, is driving home his key message. And so, uh, even so, I want to uh, emphasize the fact that even as Jesus begins to become more focused in his message and more sharp at times in drawing out the distinctions of the gospel, you will notice that there is no shortage of children. And in fact, in the preceding chapters and in the chapter after chapter 9, you'll find a lot of kids I think Steve drew attention to this last week. Um, children don't like to gather around grumpy, uh, uh, you know, kind of grumpy, unreasonable people. There was something about Jesus that attracted kids. Just keep that in mind. It's important for us because even when Jesus was driving home a particular sharp point or something that penetrates us, remember, he's the same Jesus. He's the same Jesus that can easily get a kid onto his lap. Now, sometimes, you know, you'll notice it's not always easy to get a kid onto your lap that isn't, you know, kind of shocked or crying and screaming at the same time. Jesus had the touch. It's just important to keep in mind. It was harder for Jesus sometimes to work with adults. The disciples were not fully mature in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And as I like to say, I do not mean that to discredit the disciples. None of us could hold a candle to the disciples in terms of commitment 
Bible knowledge, devotion, integrity. They were very serious men and women. All right, so when I say that they weren't fully mature, I'm not trying to say that they were bumbling idiots. We would be the bumbling idiots if we were there in the story, okay? I just want to call attention to that, not to diminish us, but just to really elevate the disciples and, and give integrity to the story. Jesus was saying new things about the relationship between God and his people, Israel. And the disciples were doing their best to metabolize it. But they weren't yet fully mature. And in Mark's gospel, we really don't actually see that happen. Mark's gospel ends abruptly after the resurrection of Jesus. And we have to move forward into Acts and the letters to kind of get the full and complete picture. Um, at this point, the, the immaturity of the relationship, I would qualify or, or describe this way. They were afraid. They were established in a fear-bonded relationship. So you'll see in uh, chapter 9, verse 32, Jesus starts to talk about his death. And what does it say? Mark says, they were afraid to ask him. All right, that is a way of saying that the disciples had not yet achieved a way of relating to Jesus that was fully established in an appropriate kind of bond of love. They were afraid. And we see this quality of fear coming out in many different dimensions. When we're afraid of people, even the ones that we love, we see them as threats or even as enemies. All right, and you'll see that in our gospel text. When we're afraid, we want to protect ourselves. So the agenda in a relationship is to protect. We want to create security and make ourselves safe. We want to justify ourselves all the time and avoid any shame. If we're afraid of somebody, we do not, do we not want to appear ashamed in front of them. So we have to justify ourselves. We don't know how to belong to the group. We don't know how to make other people feel like they belong. And you'll see all of these dynamics in our chapter, uh, our readings this morning. They're on full display. Last week, the disciples uh, are self-justifying and eager to be seen as the greatest. That was our last week's text. All right. Uh, now, jo uh, Jesus is showing them how to create belonging with children by describing how people belong to God when they are vulnerable. And that's what moves us into our passage. So here... It's John who describes for us or shows for us the us-them dynamic, uh, clearly demonstrating the boundaries of who is in and who is out. Classic fear-based relationship. They see these people doing things in Jesus' name, and so what do they do? He said, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Hallmark of a fear-based relationship. He's probably also a little embarrassed by the disciples' failure to exercise the demon from the child just a few scenes before. If you have your Bible, you'll, you'll notice that just moments before, like a day before, uh, they had really tried to cast a demon out of a poor, suffering child, and they couldn't. All right, I wonder if John was kind of stinging a little bit with embarrassment. All right, so when they see somebody who's not one of them doing it, Right? He wants to then kind of reestablish his sense of identity. 
That's what you do when you're afraid. He acts quickly to terminate the threat to the inner circle because that is the basis of his sense of identity. John is an insider, all right? That's how he knows himself to be, and that's what he wants to protect. He wants to keep that social status and is afraid that these other people are going to rob him of his sense of identity. If he's not special as an insider, then who is he? Start to resonate with that a little bit? We get like that. That's just classic socialization. It affects every single group. You know, um, our families, our churches, our neighborhoods. And so that's why Jesus now begins to act in such a way to redraw the boundaries to show that God can create a sense of belonging among many people without ever making any individual person feel as though they are less special to him. That's mature. That's maturity. That's what love looks like when it's at its height. And that's what he begins to say to John. The one who was not against us is for us. Jesus does not create this kind of zero-sum game where one person wins at the expense of another. So yes, his love is on the one hand vast, for God so loves the world, but it's still very particular because God so loved the world by loving each person uniquely. It requires trust to believe that, to know that, to see the love of God freely given without ever feeling undermined as though you're less important because of it. In fact, Jesus acknowledges even the smallest acts of kindness, such as giving a cup of water. You'll see that. He says, whoever gives a cup of water to you on behalf of me shall not lose his reward. God is eternally generous, infinitely generous. So you'll notice in this instance that the direction of belonging, interestingly, is going from the outside in. So in, what I mean by that is that it's the outsiders of the group here who are, sh who are uh, showing their love to the Messiah by sharing with Messiah's disciples. All right, so if you have your Bibles there, you see that his example here is whoever gives a cup, of water to, uh, a cup of water to drink because you belong to the Messiah. All right, so let me just clarify what I'm trying to say there. He's not saying whoever gives me a cup of water will receive his reward, that you'd expect that, like I'm the special guy, I'm the Messiah. He's saying to his disciples, whoever gives you a cup of water, that's even more disturbing. Right? The disciples would see that, oh, here are other people giving the Messiah a cup of water. That's what Messiahs do. They get stuff. Right? Jesus is saying something a little more radical. He's saying to the disciples, there are going to be people who are not part of our inner circle blessing you in my name. That's another way of saying acting like I act doing the things I do. They're going to bless you and you're going to receive that. Isn't that great? 
Well, it could be great <laughs> if you're not threatened by that act of kindness. It's very humbling, actually, for the disciples to receive from other people acts of kindness in the name of their master. And yet, it's very ennobling at the same time because Jesus is acknowledging, you are special to me. When other people treat you special, that makes me very happy because I think you're pretty special. Do you see how amazing this is? How Jesus is so mature in the way that he shows love that he's able to let everyone know that they're special without diminishing the unique value of what his movement is all about. It should be pretty affirming to John. He's telling John, hey, you belong. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to protect. I'm with you. I'm giving you everything you need, everything you hoped for. So open your hands. I hope you can see now how this is starting to connect to the passage that's coming right after this about the hands that offend. Jesus is saying, John, open your hand. Don't grasp. Don't grasp tightly your identity as being in the inner circle. There's no fear. Open your hands to, in this case, receive from my other followers. Receive the gift and thank God that his kingdom is moving all around you and the people who have also experienced my love, which doesn't come at your expense, John. Jesus is cre creating the sort of community of those who belong to him. And the reward is the acknowledgement from God that he sees. His eyes are open. God sees all of this, and his eyes see, and he's full of joy for each person individually, and he's also full of joy for that community that they're creating together in his name, meaning like him, with his identity markers. This is what the Messiah does. He connects us with the Father and with each other. You know what the Bible word is for that connection? Covenant. Covenant is the Bible word for the bond that God established with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the older covenant. And which Jesus came to confirm in his death and resurrection, the new covenant. It's a bond. It's like glue. It sticks us together. It connects us. So Mark now continues this forward, uh, Jesus will now teach about the experience that he's just demonstrated to John. And he says, again, in sober tones, verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better if a great millstone were hanged around his neck and he drowned. That's rather blunt to drive home the point about how important this is that the little ones, and here I think he means more than just children. This is a, a word of endearment for his disciples as well, for all of his followers. When there's somebody who is following after him, when we throw obstacles in the way, that's bad. All right? So that's what that word means, causes to sin. That's like causes to stumble, 
throw rocks in the path, throw up barriers and boundaries and things that obscure. Jesus is all about forming the relationship. And if we start to do things like the disciples were in danger of doing to undermine or obscure or distort that relationship, Jesus is not happy. That's because he cares about it so much. So when we say things like, you don't belong, or you're not worthy of the gifts that belong to the insiders, or, hey, you know, you have nothing to give, you have to stop doing that. That's discipleship based on fear. That's telling people, you better not screw up. And Jesus says, you know, when you do stuff like that, that's dangerous. You know, it would be really better for you not to be a part of the picture than to do stuff like that. So what does it look like when we're throwing up obstacles? That, well, we use our bodies the way that fearful people do. We try to protect ourselves and we make sure that we get what we need. We use our hands to feed ourselves and to acquire things. Our hands are closed to others and we grip tightly the things that we want for ourselves. We use our feet to step on other people as we rush to get what we want. We use our feet to get in front of others, to the front of the line. We use our feet to keep people down around us so that we're elevated. We use our eyes to covet other people's things. We use our eyes to lust and objectify people and to, and to, see, thing, to see things as a means to our own end. There's a beautiful expression in Hebrew uh, that comes from uh, um, the story of Noah. And uh, God looked at Noah. And what did God see when he looked at Noah? He found, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In Hebrew, it's motzechen benai. You find grace in my eyes. And interestingly, in modern Hebrew, that's an idiom now that you use whenever you see anything you like. Like if you're out shopping and you see a nice pair of shoes, you say, oh, that looks good in my eyes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a beautiful expression that when Noah looks at God's face, he sees grace in God's eyes. That's what eyes are for. Eyes are not for just simply coveting and lusting. But that's what happens to our hands. It's what happens to our feet and our eyes when we forget what it's like to belong to God. Perhaps Jesus is hearing the prophets, such as Isaiah. Um, Isaiah describes bodies like this in chapter 59. Whereas... In Isaiah 59, Isaiah describes what God shows us, what, he, his, what, what he's like. His hands save. His ears hear our cry. His ears are open to us and his, his face is turned to us. Here's what Isaiah says, chapter 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. 
For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your feet run to evil and swift to shed innocent blood. The way of peace you do not know. That's what happens when our bodies become servants of fear, of sin, of greed. When the members of our bodies are oriented to self-service, they obscure the love of God, which is shining upon us in the face of Jesus Christ, Paul says. And when our bodies are the means of serving our desires, then Jesus says that we eventually become our own victims. What happens when we give in to our desires? Our desires will consume us with a worm that will not die and a fire that will not be quenched. Worm and fire are perfect pictures of what happens when we are consumed by our own greed. Finally isolated from God, finally isolated from everyone else, which was really the logical conclusion of refusing to offer ourselves and belong to God instead. Jesus says, using the Jewish teaching technique of hyperbole to drive home the point, it would be better to cut off our offending limbs than succumb to the torture of our unrestricted selfishness forever. There's a lot at stake. My wife, Rebecca, reminded me that neurologically, when we reach adolescence, our brains are developing group identity. That's what happens to brains when we're 12, 13, 14 years old. We're asking ourselves, who are our people? That's why affinity groups become so essential to young people. Sometimes they're called friend groups, but friend, I don't think, is such an accurate term. We can't say that anymore with a straight face. They're often just simply fear-based groups. We have clear terms of who's in and who's out. We have clear terms about what you have to do to stay in the in-group, how you look, how you talk, who you need to reject, and who you need to accept. People crave belonging. And if the pain of loneliness is strong enough, we will join almost any group that accepts us to some degree. And in today's culture, this is leading many, many young people into deep confusion and distress about who they are and what their bodies are for. Our culture wants to consume and twist young bodies into objects for marketing and sex. But Paul, echoing Jesus, says that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Jesus is so strong on this point. God's people must know what it means to belong to him and create belonging and identity grounded in shalom, peace. That's the end of verse 50, which is not in our reading today. Have salt in yourself, Jesus said, and be at peace with one another. God's people have to know how to do this. They know, have to know how to create wholeness as I. Isaiah describes and as Jesus calls for. If you have your Bible, I'll just read this, verses 49 and 50. He says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? 
have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. To be salted with fire, that's sacrificial language. You can read about that in Leviticus. In Leviticus, sacrifices were often salted. To be salted with fire means to be sacrificed. We are to be salty people. Salty people create shalom. It's just another way of describing what it means to be long and what it means to be long based in love rather than fear. Paul knew this, the Apostle Paul. Paul's mission was to create belonging for a whole new group of people. He planted churches all over the Mediterranean world, and he had one mission, which is to create a new identity together. How? Paul says, with the cry of Abba, Father, we have a new father. We have a new family. We have a new group identity. We have a bonded way of belonging based in love. Those of you who are familiar with Paul's letter to the church in Rome will know that the first 11 chapters of that letter are the most thorough description written of what it means for us to die to self-justifying, fear-based sinfulness and to rise again as new creations in Christ Jesus that can never be separated from the love of God. Paul taught that there's a whole new way to belong to God securely, properly, rightly, maturely. There's atonement for sin, a new bond created in the Holy Spirit that Paul calls adoption. Paul says this, if God before us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I am sure that neither death nor life nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. For 11 chapters, he describes in various metaphors and tones the depth and passion of that loving bond in Christ. And only then, in chapter 12 of Romans, does he begin to elaborate about what it means to respond out of that love. And here, Paul sounds very much like Jesus. He elaborates on Jesus' teaching. And he says in chapter 12, I appeal to you therefore, meaning because you're part of the family now, by the mercies of God, remember mercy is a covenant term because there's this bonded relationship, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Or as Jesus has said, salted with fire. Don't be conformed to this world with its self-justifying, fear-based, covetous way of relating, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may discern the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then Paul goes on to continue with amazing instructions on how to create belonging, letting love be genuine, blessing enemies, showing hospitality. I just want to close by attending to Jesus' words here. If your hand is open for yourself and closed to other people, cut it off. If your feet are swift to destroy the reputation of other people and slow to share the good news, cut it off. If your eyes covet and lust rather than find grace for other people, pluck it out.
How? That's, if Jesus were here right now, that's what I'd be asking him. Jesus, <laughs> where's the instruction on how to do it? Jesus is describing for us right now what it feels like to be stuck between our temptation and our maturity. We know we should be generous, but we aren't. We know we should not lust, but we do. We know we should find grace, but we can't. How do we obey the words of Jesus? Well, it is a process. And the process is the process is what's happening in the belonging that Jesus is creating with his disciples. It's a process of becoming mature in our relationship. And that's the key word. There is no practice that you can do to become a less lustful, covetous, angry person on your own. It does not exist. The way of becoming mature in relationship requires that we become mature in our relationship with God and with other people. And it just requires a process of growing up. That's kind of what maturity means. We have to obey. Obedience is very, very important. Obedience will often reveal the place where our identities are not yet fully reconciled with Christ. It's very often the case that when we obey, we'll find ourselves failing. Don't be discouraged. That's just giving you information on places in your heart that are not repentant, that are not forgiven, that are not healed, or that maybe just don't know. When we're hungry with greed, or lust, or disdain, that's when, in that moment, that's when we need to experience someone's presence. It's when we're hungry that we need food. It's when we're in pain that we need the help of another person that's glad to be with us. When we're feeling that, that's when we need to stop our hands, stop our feet, close our eyes, redirect them, but not just to inward disgust, but we need to direct them into the heart of Jesus or into the fellowship of another person who can remind us who we are and help us to return to the joy of belonging to God and to each other, to the quiet peace of security and love. This is what James tells us today. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That is a very important teaching moment where we're in the grip of something we can't get out of. Oftentimes, this is a very simple act of prayer to open the door to the Holy Spirit. And I encourage each of you to find a simple prayer. One that I've learned comes from Psalms. Whenever I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. I can say that when I'm feeling that uncontrollable, insatiable appetite to use my hands and my feet and my heart in the wrong way, my eyes. Whenever I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. Here's another prayer. It's the last prayer of the Bible. 
Come, come Holy Spirit. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha. That's another prayer I like to use. There's the ancient Orthodox prayer, the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's just meant to express our need, our vulnerability. So when we're feeling alone or isolated in the grip of temptation, that's a good place to start, is with a simple prayer where we open up to the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who can do for us what we ought to be doing too. He can look on us with his eyes of grace. He can use his hands to hold ours. He can use his feet to put the enemy down and establish us in a secure place and carry us to safety. When we're feeling this way towards other people, a simple act of prayer for the person you despise can often contradict the wrong movement in our heart. We need to bless those who curse us. Here's another thing that I think is essential for us, and that's a request of humility to a mature friend, a mature friend who's pleased to be with me and remind me what it's like to be a child of God. Here's what our people do when we're struggling. Remind me who I am in Christ. It's very important that we're used to receiving and giving prayer for each other and to stand with each other and to say, here's what it's like to be us. Here's what it's like to be a child of God. Here's what it's like to belong. Those things quiet the temptations. And when trust builds, our hands open. Our eyes see the way God sees. Our feet are quick to be the bearers of good news. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. You'll begin to see with the eyes of God again. You'll be able to be like he is to do what he does, to create the work of the kingdom, to create belonging, and to bring shalom. Amen.